I still, I still struggle to identify exactly what went wrong with me. Why, why aren't I the white person that I was born and bred to be? I have a hard time imagining our society um, willfully and intentionally deconstructing uh, and disentangling itself from white supremacy. I see the black vulture picking at the carcass in the road. This is a podcast entitled What We Will Abide. In this episode, I have a conversation with Nick Myron, who is the Social Justice and Advocacy Director at the YWCA in Lancaster. I first became acquainted with Nick when he did his anti-racism and anti-sexism trainings a couple of years ago, and the conversation that we have here uh, touches upon many of those issues. Uh, warning by way of an apology, uh, you're going to hear in the background um, the whirring of a box fan, uh, because it was exceedingly warm in my room during our conversation. There were no real adverse effects, I don't think, uh, but you will hear the sound in the background, and for that, I apologize. Now my conversation with Nick Myron. Well, uh, Nick Myron, I work uh, just about across the street, <laughs> why do you say Lancaster? My, my title changed uh, about a year ago to Director of Social Justice and Advocacy. It doesn't mean anything substantial for my old title, <laughs> uh, but what I what I do there is is lead a lot of workshops, uh, educational opportunities for the community, mostly for the community uh, that look at issues of justice and oppression. A primary focus is racism. Uh, we do anti-sexism also, uh, but really, especially now, um, racism has to be front and center in a lot of the conversations. Uh, and I also find that for white people, uh, racism is one of the things that people want to go to last. We can talk about sexism, we can talk about poverty, we can talk about heterosexism, uh, but racism is something that a lot of white folks don't want to get involved in. As a white person, I, I can speak to that. So I've been doing that there uh, at the YW for uh, about five years. Why do white people want to go to racism last? Why is it the thing that they find most, I don't know, fearsome or anathema to talk about? <laughs> um... I can't exactly say why. I think it varies from, from white person to white person. A lot of it has to do with, uh, I think, fear of self-discovery. Um, people don't want to think they're racist. Why not? Because it counters the narrative they have of themselves as good people. There seems to be, at least in America today, a contingent of people who, at least on the surface of it, seem to be if not proud racists, and not that they would call themselves racist, but they would go as far to say that there are certain people who, number one, deserve to be citizens of this country, certain people who should be given entry into this country, certain people who, um, by nature of where they come from and the color of their skin, let's say, um, deserve certain rights, etc., and so on. Um, to me, they don't seem to be afraid of self-discovery so much as they're kind of taking 
I, I, I can't think of another word, but they're sort of taking pride in the fact that they are exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, we don't often get uh, folks like that <laughs> at our trainings. So, so for, for but us... But they're the folks you need to get. It seems to me that they would be people you'd want to at least... Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think I want them in my training. You don't. You don't. And and the reason is is a couple things. One, um, well, very practically speaking, if if you get folks that are intentionally exclusive, um, and, and whether they call themselves racist, but intentionally grab hold of those ideas that that certain people, um, certain ways of being are superior to others, it would be very traumatic for folks that the, that do come to a workshop and training. So so first of all, we try to limit. Uh, that conversation. Uh, second, though, uh, I think the work of justice is not about getting everybody. It's about getting those who are questioning, who are curious, who are seeing that there is some injustice, that there's violence, and that it can be stopped. It's about getting those people on board with the lens and an analysis of the situation uh, so that they can go out then and create change in their communities, where they are in their spheres, so to speak. So it's not about getting every single person. It's about getting the right people and enough of the right people to create the change we're looking for. Why is racism, do you think, so prominent? Why is it, as you mentioned a moment or two ago, um, the issue that we really need to take on um, right now? I think it's still, it's still very uh, prevalent because of white supremacy. Uh, and so one of the one of the ways that we've changed our language, me especially again as a white person, is um, not even talking about white privilege anymore or racism, but white supremacy. Because I do believe it's possible to eliminate racism but still have white supremacy. Explain that. White supremacy is a system of values, of norms, a way of living that involves capital, capitalism, money, uh, involves patriarchy. Uh, it's really a way of of creating control and power over a broad spectrum of, of humanity, people's lives, specifically in this country. Uh, so it's about, it's about waking up, being born, basically being born into a system of servitude for your life. And that uh, once you're five years old, school's mandatory, not just any education, mind you, but a very specific formalized style of schooling is mandatory all that to prepare you not to be yourself, but to work for a living. And so people aren't really allowed to live anymore. We literally have to earn a living, which all goes to the service of something else. Uh, those who are at the top with, with, with money and, and the ultimate control and power. So as long as we're living in a country that, that has that kind of formula, that has any good specific issues like home ownership, that's a very white European way of doing things. Well, let's talk about, you brought up home ownership. I think it would be useful for the hundreds of thousands of people that will be listening to this (laughs) to get kind of a a practical step-by-step on how home ownership demonstrates or is indicative of white supremacy. So you you mentioned that as an example. So how does that work? Why would people, the average person might say, what are you... What are you talking about? Sure. Um, why would you cast a shadow across one of the, you know, pinnacles of the American dream, one of the main foundations of it, which is like to own a home? Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> so, so why is home ownership at, at at the foundation of white supremacy, white European supremacy? Sure, I, I have been called fun sucker, and uh, 
many different things. So those of you who love homes and, and home ownership, and I, I own a home. Uh, you know, I don't want to derail your dream. Uh, home ownership really fits into this narrative, though, speaking of dreams, of the American dream. And uh, I think the way it ties into white supremacy is, is in its nature of individualism. And so many other cultures, uh, indigenous to this land and throughout the world, um, historically have been very communally minded. Uh, and so no one person within the organization or uh, within the, the community um, or tribe or band or however they are defined uh, themselves, no one person would really have much more than anyone else in terms of material possession, wealth, uh, what have you. Uh, so the notion that that we can live as individuals and be disconnected from those around us um, and in, in terms of the question when it comes to home ownership is a very white European way of, of doing things and it's a form of control. Uh, and so what it does is allow me to live my life and go to that compulsory education, uh, get the job, get the house, and I can feel like I've made it. And once I've made it, I can then blame everybody else for not making it, uh, especially when you uh, incorporate poverty into the mix. Um, and home ownership is also a way to give a, a, a real story of uh, breaking the power of Native Americans uh, during the 1800s when they were forced into reservation life. Um, beyond that breakage of uh, the, the historical life of uh, the various uh, groups of people living here, uh, they were forced into reservations and then further forced into individual homes and home ownership. And it was a way of breaking the communal ties that they had had. And once you break a communal tie with, with a group of people, you then break their power. And so we, we don't have a community of people who are rising up. We have individuals who are living their individual lives, um, representative in one way uh, through home ownership. You augment that also by forcing them to go to European schools, by, by um, making it illegal for them to speak their tribal sure. languages. Um, and I, I read recently, I was... Um, giving myself a treat and I was reading the graphic version of Howard Zinn's A People's History to, uh, of American Empire um, which is a companion piece to Howard Zinn's History of the United States um, A People's History of the United States and in it um, they were talking about they had crushed so much of their culture that, that, that all that was left of them for them was the something called a ghost dance mm -hmm. um, and so they would perform these ghost dances um, in sort of celebration of and in mourning of the lives of many hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost at the hands of um, you know American soldiers and regular people, um, and then they outlawed the outlawed the ghost dances too because the and there are all these you know writs of Congress saying that they were they scared white people, mm -hmm. um, and so like that <laughs> they taken everything away from them and then here's this last bit that that basically is you accepting the death of your culture I'm going to take that away too mm -hmm. yeah. um, some people listening well I guess if they know you they know what they're getting but if some people listening <laughs> who don't might say well uh, doesn't that all sound a lot like you, conspiracy theory you know the Illuminati the nameless faceless corporatists at the top determining everything that we do everything that we eat everything we watch on television uh, come on you you know belong in an X-Files episode mm -hmm. yeah. so Two questions. Where did that sort of idea begin? Where did home ownership and everything that comes from that begin? And come on, man. Isn't it? Isn't, does, that sounds sort of like conspiracy-like. So pick one of those questions and go uh, on with it. 
Sure. Yeah, I'm just a I'm just a big dream crusher. I, I know this. Uh, you know, the the reality though is that, that, again the notion of the American dream has really been a nightmare for a lot of people. Uh, and so, where did it begin? I mean, you can you can you know, look back historically into Europe and see systems of control, um, all all within uh, whiteness, right? All all white people uh, living out systems of control um, of individualism of power wealth. Uh, so coming here to this land then it started really immediately uh, you read Howard Zinn's book so um, you might be familiar with the very first page where he talks about what Columbus said um, so Columbus talks about how uh, the people he found the Arawak uh, Arawak language group of people Taino culturally were very beautiful handsome features uh, and then goes on to say that he could subjugate them with 50 men and make them do whatever he wanted so he, he came over with an idea that he and his culture were superior already. So he sets up, uh, well then, and launched genocide that would that really continues uh, to this day. Individualism as a, as a concept. Yeah. Like, where does that, where does that begin? I mean, if I'm thinking about European individualism, I'm thinking about the Enlightenment, you know, I'm thinking about, like, Voltaire, Locke, and Rousseau. I'm thinking about those kind of ideas which, you know, separate you from, like, um, the traditional aristocracy um, and the tradition of the church, um, but I feel like it maybe even even before that because those people too, even though they didn't recognize it, I guess as such, were certainly engaging in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, so it has to begin even before that. Mm -hmm. When does it begin? When groups of people are not given enough to sustain themselves, um, they have two options: they can they can group together and and fight together for survival. Or they can split themselves apart and fight each other, uh, even within groups, fight each other for survival. Uh, and it comes from this fear of not having enough, right? Uh, and so I, I think when we, when we look at the ways that, that Europe began to, to, people with power began to decimate communities uh, and, and through starvation and, and then taxation, uh, I think that mindset of fear of not having enough just got so ingrained in white people's minds, and this is just a piece. I'm not there's obviously much more than this, uh, but the, that that fear just kept on coming through generation and generation. And then, so when white people started coming to this land um, and taking the land and taking the resources and killing people uh, so they could survive here, that it, it just had been a setup all along. This this fear of not having enough. So I, I think that. The narrative that you're uh, describing actually fits very well with the collapse of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. wherein, at least for a couple of hundred years, people, if they were citizens of the empire and they weren't slaves, um, they had enough, mm -hmm. and the empire generally like took care of them. And, and maybe they were overtaxed, and maybe they were impressed with the army, but for the most part, they had what they needed. Uh, when that all falls apart, that's when you get that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's... The empire falls apart. What's left of it goes to various numbers of Goths, Ostrogoths, Visigoths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. then you get that sort of revert to tribalism, but not the kind of tribalism we talked about earlier, but a tribalism where it's like not about coexisting. Mm -hmm. It's very much about fighting against so that you can get something, that you, you can get resources that you absolutely need to survive. There's no thought of, hey, why don't we coalesce into a unit exactly. that works together? Yeah. Then... I was thinking about jumping ahead 
uh, a couple thousand years, but n- not that far, uh, at least in the mentality of the of, of the purveyors of this idea at the time, Hitler. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about Germany in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about a group of pretty adva- advanced technologically, educationally people who fell into the hands of this person who was clearly a psychopath. Um, and I think it's the same exact idea that propelled them in that direction. Fear of not having enough. Mm-hmm. Um, which stems from like, just well, what do you, you, and you have to ask yourself, well, what is enough? And mm-hmm. sure. all, all that. Um, but so, you know, First Reich and then Third Reich, right? They fall prey to his, you know, maniacal ideas because it's like, well, he's going to provide us with the safety that we so crave mm-hmm. because things are so out of control, because inflation is through the roof, because they have all these enemies. He's going to give us the answers. He's going to provide us with food and safety. Mm-hmm. And he's going to point out who the enemies are, right? They're socialists, they're Jews, they're gays, what, what, what have you. Um, and I think it's... Absolutely. I think it's... And I think you're seeing it happen... Again, now. Right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it was actually those people who are more inclined to that message that I was speaking about earlier who you said, I don't think we can... They're too far gone. We can't bring them into the fold. Um, but then there are the French people who are afraid to. And I'm going to shut up in a second. I'm asking. I'm going to ask you a question. This is all coming to a question. They're the, who are afraid to self-reflect. How do you get them to do it? What do those training sessions look like? Um, and you know, what is like? What is the successful one look mm-hmm. like? Yeah. Um, and truthfully, just, just before I get into that, I don't think any human is too far gone. Okay. Uh, all, there, there's, there's redemption no. possibilities in no. all humanity. Not even, not even Hitler? <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 read, him early. <laughs> I read a lot, and I'm not saying if someone had gone to him early, it would have changed. However, um, I fear a time when, when justice seekers, when, when people who are trying to create a better world fail to see humanity in even the most monstrous of us, um, that scares me. So I think we need to be able to find, and, and, and not to say, well, he wasn't all bad. It's not about saying that the worst of us are, are anything. It's just there, there's pieces of humanity in everybody's story, uh, no matter how evil we want to label them. Um, but to the, to the question, I think uh, co- cognitive dissonance is, a, is something that we, we try to create in all trainings. And I wouldn't say it's an explicit goal. We don't we don't look through a, a content of a workshop and say how do we create cognitive dissonance. But it's kind of the the overarching um, implied goal that we do have. Because once you do that in a person, then the questions become that uh, is multiply, and then people start questioning themselves, which is much healthier than me questioning somebody. Mm. Like what the heck would you think that for? <laughs> Coming from me, a facilitator is not going to yield the same answer as. I wonder why I thought that a person is own self-reflection. So cognitive dissonance, just, just through um, different narratives, different storytelling. Uh, so a lot of the workshops we have uh, have, depending on how long of a time frame, participants sharing their stories. Um, and so you might get a narrative of somebody who, who grew up in a way, uh, let's, say, let's say I'm a well-meaning white person, raised, born and raised middle class, uh, parents were educated. Um, I was educated. This is actually my story. <laughs> um, let's say that. Well, well me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm at a training, and I have this notion that the land is opportunity for all. That if people just just 
put in their hard work that yes, they can succeed. There's education, and, and you know, we've heard this rhetoric before. Um, and so, coming into to a training session like that, if I hear somebody's story and am able to to listen, uh, listen well, then what I might be able to start picking up on is that this this narrative, this this hard work thing, has not worked for everybody. That a person can work twice as hard as I ever had to and make it half as far. And so that that piece right there, when someone else is, is storytelling and, and I'm there listening, a well-meaning white person, it creates a cognitive dissonance. So how is this possible? This isn't the land that I knew. And so I'm going to start questioning everything, everything I thought, uh, everything I thought I knew, every perception I had. Um, not to throw everything out. It's not that everything I think is bad or wrong. It's not even about that. It's saying, okay, well, how do I broaden my understanding to incorporate uh, a new vision that says, okay, this is this person's experience. Um, yeah, how does that square with mine? What more do I need to know? What questions do I need to ask? When we get well-meaning white people to that point, I think we've had a successful training. When I started this work, I really was coming at it from a place of uh, my own my own understanding of what racism was. Uh, and I, I started actually through the lens of it was a group of people who were working to eliminate sexual violence uh, aimed at, at men, engaging men. Um, and I certainly thought of myself as a good man. You know, I wouldn't do those things. I wouldn't do uh, that stuff or whatever. Uh, and so when it comes to racism, uh, there's definitely that, that aspect of it for me also. Um, it was, I have some things that I know that you also need to know. And once you know them, once I teach you what you don't know, you'll be a better person. You might be like me. <laughs> so there, there was that. Uh, of course, it's never explicit. Um, but, but I definitely had those feelings. But I, I think even more importantly, it was I, was, um, I would operate and facilitate in a way of not saying the wrong thing. And so it was a lot of fear of, of not, it wasn't being perceived as racist. It was that I've been brought in to facilitate this workshop or a group of people. Uh, I'm expected to know a certain amount of things. And so if I say something that offends somebody, People are going to not give me credibility, and, and I won't be viewed as the person that they think I am, um, and ultimately maybe I think I am. And so I, I would operate out of that and not say things that needed to be said sometimes, um, because I didn't want I didn't want that dynamic. And so I, as I did this work longer, as I've done it longer, I've been able to recognize that that was happening, <laughs> and then not let it hold me back. And so I say things now without fear of being taken a certain way because I know that if somebody is offended, you know, I, I, I can respond. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I know differently, right? right. And there's ways to respond to that. Um, and so I don't, I don't let those kinds of things hold me back any longer. Whenever it came to speaking about uh, an experience of a black person, if there was a black person in the room, I, would be, I wouldn't say something. I wouldn't say um, what that black experience might be because I didn't want to come across as whatever I might come across as. Right. Whereas now I can say, um, I can feel very comfortable saying, in my experience talking to people who are black, this is what they share with me. Right. Whereas before I would, yeah, I wouldn't. So that kind of scenario, uh, I feel like I can, I can speak now. So you've described, you put yourself in those shoes, the well-meaning white person who is all of a sudden confronted with some of the great kind of yawning abysses that actually are... <laughs> that actually exists where he thought a foundation once did. So if that was if that was you, who who who's who's your facilitator? How did you get to the point where you began to question 
<laughs> yeah. So I'm asking you to basically yeah. go back to that point or yeah. one of the points where you began to, I don't know, the scales came off your eyes, yeah. to use a phrase. Ah. I still I still struggle to identify exactly what went wrong with me. Wrong. <laughs> why why aren't I the white person that I was born and bred to be? I see. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I remember very distinctly being young, um, and uh, my father was my father was Jewish. Uh, he converted to to uh, the Mennonite faith when, when he married my mother. Uh, I actually became a Mennonite reverend then, so I've always had a pretty diverse um, religious background in many ways. Um, and so with all that, I remember very clearly um, being eight, nine years old. By this point, we had left the Mennonite church and we were out going to the Episcopalian church. Um, and you hear hearing the lofty message on a Sunday morning. And, and I remember very clearly going home to my parents' uh, house. Um, you know, we had food available, middle class, like I said. And I knew that there was people in this city that were not having a place to go. Uh, they were homeless. Um, that was the extent of my understanding that there were homeless people. Right. Um, and so things didn't make sense to me. And so I was always on this, this kind of search as to, okay, well, how can we be saying this at, at this place we call church? And then everybody goes home and puts on football. And um, I think it was a few years later, I remember asking my dad about the uh, Israeli-Palestine conflict. But I remember saying to my dad, you know, why can't, if people care that much about the violence stopping, why don't a million people just fly over there, stand on the border and say, no, you're not going to shoot people. You're not going to throw grenades, whatever you were. And so I didn't understand how people could just be so um, lackadaisical, I guess, when when people were not having a home or or dying. Um, Now, that never took on a huge, huge portion of my life until I became a little bit older. Um, I was I was very typically white male angst and frustrated during high school. Uh, I didn't fit in very well. Um, Why was that? Middle school and high school in particular. The things that I thought were important, uh, I couldn't find people that also thought they were important. Um, and so as I got out of out of high school, and especially children really really brought some, some lens to me, um, I got I, every opportunity I took to, to get involved in anti-violence or justice um, you know, oppression workshops I did and the language just clarified a lot. So all the things I've been struggling with and all of a sudden they became clear and I could really understand what was happening. Uh, the frustrations, the uncertainty that I had. Uh, so for me, it was very much a personal journey of awakening. Um, yeah. uh, I, as you were talking, obviously it's hard not to um, think about my own, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually quite different. Um, I also hail from well, I hail from two Jewish parents, um, both of whom stayed Jewish. <laughs> um, my father's still alive. My mother no longer is. Um, but I remember the things that were important to them that they wanted to instill in me as I was growing up. Certainly Israel-Palestine was, if not an explicit issue on the docket for, not for discussion, but for what you're supposed to think about it, mm. it kind of served as this kind of like, here's... Here's the thing which we all which we all agree upon, um, which is interesting because it, sir, it it stood kind of in stark contrast to everything else they professed to believe, which was a I see now as and I don't blame them for this at all, and my dad might listen to this one day, and so I love him to death. Um, but you know they were in a lot of ways, if this means anything to you, it probably does. Typical um, upper middle class or middle class um, white Jewish liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, who vote de- voted Democratic every election. Sure. We, we now know that means absolutely nothing. At the time, I thought it meant something. Yeah. 
So, but like we, we held on to that, and I thought that that was, and that's where I was like, this is my political stance. This is where I am. And it, it sort of, you know, it, 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 in stark contrast to like Israel, where it really was the other way around. Whenever anyone like tried to sort of show me that, you know, it's interesting that you're on the left here in the United States, but you're technically on the right when it comes to Israel-Palestine, and you have well, Israel-Palestine, Israel, and you have relatives and friends that live in Israel, and and there's this weird imbalance, and I thought, ah, you, you know nothing. <laughs> you just don't know. Yeah. You, you know nothing. Um, and I have to tell you that that was the prevailing worldview for me for, like, a very long time, mm-hmm. like, well into my 30s. Mm-hmm. I'm 41 now. Um, so this is late in the game for me. If I, and we, I've been a party or a participant in your, your sessions uh, a, a few times now. And, and I, um, I think that if I'd confronted you like six or seven years ago, maybe certainly 10, I would not have been as open to your message. Mm. I would have felt very attacked. I think mm. I would have felt very challenged and I would have like, no, oh, no, no, what are you talking about? I'm a progressive thinking person. I'm a liberal. I, I racism is bad. I'm not racist. <laughs> yeah. um, but really, it's the past three, four years, you know, that have and only coming to um, a different perspective on Israel and Palestine. That's late too. That's mm. the last eight or ten. Mm. So I'm a late. You know, as my wife often says, I'm a, I'm a late bloomer. Um, we're living in a period of time that is. And I thought you were going to say earlier that we need to address racism as the most pressing issue because it's so forefront mm-hmm. right now. And it, it's a thing I think, and I'd like your opinion on this, actually, that is dividing us beyond potential repair. Um, you seem more optimistic than that. But, um, you know, for example, uh, police shootings of late. Um you have a very distinct divide amongst people. You mm-hmm. have people protesting in the street, and you have people who are very much in support of law enforcement over and against any kind of movement that says, hey, maybe you're using too much force. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very entrenched. People are digging their heels in. I know, what's what's going to happen? Predict, <laughs> predict the future. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I have a hard time... I have a hard time imagining our society um, willfully and intentionally deconstructing uh, and disentangling itself from white supremacy. I have a hard time imagining that happening here um, without the inevitable um, cataclysmic event. Yeah, there's something that'll completely plummet our society into it. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, it could be an economic or depression that's well beyond what already happened. It could be a total electrical meltdown that'll send us back. Uh, The fall of capitalism where we're all growing vegetables in our... I have no idea uh, what that will look like. I I have a hard time imagining our society intentionally trying to disentangle ourselves, however, from our white supremacist uh, culture. What what I can say is that uh, I'm not always optimistic. Uh, I think a word I I prefer for myself is hope. Um, one of the challenges I've had is, is thinking beyond myself. Uh, a good friend of mine, a person I've trained with often, uh, Naomi Leapart, uh, she'll often say that, that 
you know supremacy is winning when it, you cannot imagine anything else. And so what that says to me is two. One, I need to I need to keep challenging myself to think beyond what I think I can think about, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, it also really uh, helps me to understand that while supremacy has limited my imagination and I'm going to keep working for an end game that I'm not exactly sure what it looks like. I'll keep working for it. And it's becoming clear. What, what I won't allow supremacy to do is, is, um, is squelch my hope. Uh, we have to always hope we can do something better than what we're doing now. And that's, that hope is what drives me. Uh, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it was possible to undo it. Okay. <laughs> um, did I answer your question? Maybe I, I didn't answer your question No, you, you did. You did. I, I, I just, I, you say the word hope and for some reason, I automatically become sad. <laughs> uh, and you, you talk about a thing, and I didn't... Um, in a lot of these conversations, I wind up pressing people to talk about, you know, <laughs> the end of civilization. But you you actually went there on your own, and you're like, beyond... Beyond... That's what you're talking about, sort of the, the collapse of civilization as, as, we, as it is right now. Mm-hmm. White supremacy will persist. What do you see... For this town, mm-hmm. um, because you could be doing this work anywhere, mm-hmm. um, and God knows anywhere needs it. Uh, but you're here; you grew up here, um, and you know you have kids here. They go to school here, so perhaps you're committed to this place. What do you see? Um, I don't know, just I don't know. Describe like Lancaster twenty years ago. Talk about it now. What your hope for it in the future is, in terms uh, of the work you're doing, in terms sure, of the things sure. you just mentioned. We drive around, you know, we, we travel a lot, uh, family and I, and when we're driving, we always drive wherever we go. What always strikes me is just how many people there are in this country. And so you think about how many people need to wake up and, and mobilize. And it, it, there's a, a phenomenal amount of, of apathy um, and acceptance for what is, as much as people don't want it to be the case. And so I think what, what ultimately can happen is if we focus on our local communities, um, like Lancaster, for example, we can really create change in local ways. Um, and so starting to bring back community, uh, communal living, uh, not the 60s commune slash cult type of communal living, but, but really looking out for and relying on, on your neighbors, uh, people that are, that are nearby you. Um, I think when we, can, when we can do that in a way that, that diminishes the power of the overarching society, uh, that is one of maybe our best avenues out of the supremacist society that we live in. We don't give the people. I mean, when you think of think of the the insanity of having one person to lead three hundred some million people. That's crazy. How will that ever work? Um, oh, yeah, only a white supremacist society can say yes. You have one leader is going to lead all of you. Um, it's not going to happen. And so. Am I advocating for the decline of the presidency? Well, yes, maybe I am. Uh, because what it's going to take is, is people just really downsizing their impact, their footprint, um, and upsizing their connectivity to everyone around them, th- those with whom we have most direct impact. Uh, and so for me personally, uh, and I'm not always successful at living this way. Um, so I'm not trying to hold myself up as anything. But at the same time, the... I can't ever feel joy or uh, peace or happiness if those around me are feeling 
miserable, down, um, whether it's uh, through friendships or family. So I, I feel a very strong sense of uh, emotion, intuition, whatever you want to call it, based on those around me. And so I think where my people will be uh, is wherever other people share that kind of, and this is just me personally, I'm not trying to say societies or communities should live this way, but that's where my people will be, is, is when others' sense of being and, and accomplishment and success and joy is really attached to the success and joy and, and feelings of attainment of other people. Um, I remember being very young in elementary school, um, and I didn't have a sense of whiteness. Uh, I knew I was white, but I didn't know what it meant or anything like that. But what I remember clearly, I must have been in second grade at a family night, and there was maybe two or three um, young students, black students, in, a, in, a, in my grade, uh, in my class. And I remember seeing the, their families interacting uh, and just huge smiles and joy to see each other. And I always I, I observed that. I stood in observance and wished it for myself. And I say that story to say that I, I think one of, the, one of the ways that white supremacy has impacted us is in making us feel like, yes, everywhere, everywhere is crap. Everywhere just is terrible. And I think when we can find the beauty and joy and always hold the balance of that um, and recognize that there are people and, and in this country, there's, there's communities of people that do share that, that type of, of cooperative spirit. That, that love for one another that that supersedes all else uh, I think finding that and, and being able to fit into it uh, is more difficult <laughs> but it's there I really believe that as I mentioned at the top I've been a participant in a couple of Nick's anti-racism trainings um, and I have to say that uh, they are entirely non-threatening uh, they are entirely um, accessible and uh, in no way are they pedantic. Uh, the training sessions that I was involved in, of course, were for teenagers, these are for high school students, so there's a certain tenor uh, to those that obviously differs from a training he would do for adults. I'm actually scheduled to um, participate in a training that he's doing for adults later uh, next month. But in these, uh, I, I could tell you that um, the way that Nick runs them is by simply, certain by, by first by engaging with the audience and, and offering um, several ways in for them. And he doesn't lecture, uh, and he certainly um, doesn't offer judgments, and he certainly doesn't call groups of people out um, for certain ways of thinking, as he described uh, in our conversation. Um, he has a, a very distinct demeanor. Um, it is almost demure. It is low key. Uh, it is kind, um, which in a lot of ways is jarring because um, if you look at it on the surface of it, uh, the way that he approaches things in some ways is in direct contradiction or contravention to the actual content that he's offering. He may be saying some rather uh, jarring incendiary things, um, but he does it in a very gentle calm, caring, inclusive way. Um, and there's something about that combination of those two things. Uh, one, the bombast of the message um, sort of wrapped in a very kind, 
gentle, almost kind of silky wrapping. Um, it's very effective. Uh, of course, not all of Nick's trainings go well. Um, in fact, after I turned the mic off, we talked about a couple of instances in which the training did not go so well. Um, and um, suffice to say that uh, in some situations, Nick finds that he cannot reach people. They refuse to be reached. They uh, remain resistant. Um, finally, uh, I am happy to announce that What We Will Abide is now, I guess, a legit podcast and that it's uh, featured on iTunes. Um, you can find it by searching in the podcast sections of your iTunes store, or you can go to samschindler.com, that's S-A-M-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and find all the available podcasts there. You can, you can subscribe there as well. You can also uh, leave any comments or questions uh, on uh, in, in the comments section there. All you need to do is click on the podcast uh, which will take you to a separate page, uh, and there is a field there in which you can register your thoughts. Please do. I really, really, really appreciate any feedback that I can get, um, especially in these early stages. Um, so feel free to ask questions uh, or to post comments or anything of that nature. Uh, one final thank you uh, to Ralph Drake who helped me uh, in various ways this summer um, and most recently in setting up the website so that the podcast can be distributed that way. Thank you, Ralph, uh, and thank you for listening. Original music is by Morning Stillness. The song is called Black Vulture. I am the black vulture, feel this form, find my place at last. I look down for